want you to think about all the great lines you've ever heard in a TV show. For me, the greatest line ever spoken in a TV show comes down to two simple words. Hello, Newman. <laughs> Seinfeld is without a doubt, hands down, my favorite show of all time. Put aside Walking Dead, put aside any other show. Seinfeld is the greatest comedy of all time. And I love hearing Jerry talk about what's behind Newman. He says it's not just Newman coming in the door and you're looking at him and saying, hello, Newman. He says he walks in the door. He does his little stance. You look into his beady little eyes and you see all the hate and evil in the world. And then you look at him and say, hello, Newman. TV rivalries propel entertainment. Think about all the rivalries that have powered all the entertainment we've ever watched as a kid. It began with Tom and Jerry, Bugs and Elmer Fudd. Then it matured to G.I. Joe and Cobra Commander. Then it was He-Man and Skeletor, and it was Popeye and Brutus. Then it became Skywalker and Darth Vader. It became Apollo Creed and Rocky, Daniel's son, and Johnny. Though some would flip that around and say that Johnny was really the one who was being bullied, not Daniel's son. Then you think about Bond and Dr. No. Then the ones of today, Rick Grimes versus the governor, Rick Grimes versus shame, Joffrey versus everybody else in the world. Rivalries propel our entertainment. It makes for good entertainment. We enjoy that type of thing. But think about it. How much of our life is propelled by rivalries? How much of our day-to-day lives are propelled by those people who, if we're honest, make our lives a little bit of a living hell? Those people that make us miserable at work, those people who make us miserable maybe at home, heaven forbid, maybe somebody in this space today. Think about how much energy we put into people who we despise or people who have made our lives miserable. The great Vince Lombardi said, winning is not everything. It's the only thing. And we want to be on top. We want to have the final word. We want to be the one that is standing in the end victorious in all these things. But is that really how we want to run our life if we think about it? Think how much negative emotion. Think about how much thought-consuming mindsets we have around getting around those people who make our life difficult. So are rivals really worth it? Are they more destroying us from the inside out than we care to recognize? And that's going to be the center of our conversation this morning. For those that have been joining us uh, this morning, we are um, really headlong into a series in the book of First and Second Samuel. The book centers on Samuel the prophet and priest, the first King Saul, and then David who will take his place. And to kind of catch you up in where we've been in our narrative, last week we encountered the text where Saul finally dies. He falls and fails completely miserably as this just stereotypical tragic hero within scripture and so he falls and what comes next well that's how david handles what comes next how do you handle yourself after the person who's literally been trying to hunt you down and kill you who's been murdering other people in order to find you how do you respond when you finally find out that that villain that other person is dead well this is how david responds in second samuel chapter one verse one we have the scripture for you on your handout After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag. Two days on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid honor to him. Where have you come from? David asked. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many have fallen and are dead. 
And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead. So there are two wars that are simultaneously taking place. To give you a little context around our story. Saul has been fighting the Philistines and has completely failed and has died. And all of his sons and the men who are fighting with him have been murdered. And then David is off fighting another battle against a group called the Amalekites. But it's curious, isn't it, that an Amalekite is the one who comes to tell David that Saul is dead. And so when we first read the text, what do we think? We begin to think that maybe maybe David was involved in the death of Saul. Maybe he finally had enough and had this man plotted and killed Saul on the spot. So so why is it that this man is involved in this? But it's important for us to understand that there's a theme that runs throughout 1 and 2 Samuel. It's this theme of David not wanting to harm God's anointed king. We read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 24 where it said that Saul was hiding in a cave. David crept behind him. He could have killed him, but he chose not to. He chose mercy. He chose to bless the man who was trying to harm him. And so it wouldn't make sense for David to do this in this moment. So at the threat of his life, how does David respond? Look at verse 5. It says, Then David said to the young man who brought the report to him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be at Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on a spear with the chariots and the drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and, and said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band that was on his arms and have brought them to you here, my Lord. Now, this is a bit odd. Obviously, if you weren't in last week's text, you learned that this is a completely different story than what we read about last week. What we read about last week is that Saul is in the throes of death. He realizes what's happening to him, so he wants to die an honorable death instead of being taken captive and tortured like the case would be for the ancients here. So Saul looks at a servant and asks his servant to kill him, but the servant refuses, so what does the scripture say? It says that Saul falls down on his sword and dies. So why is there a change in the story? Is this a a contradiction in the Bible? Or could it be that there's something going on within this text that maybe we need to understand? Could it be that this Amalekite is twisting this story for a couple different reasons? I think one reason is, is pretty plain and simple. It's good old juicy information he wants to pass on to another person. Now, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for you this morning, um, but news came down on my social media feed that uh, Willie Nelson actually died last night. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible. I mean, this guy is in his 80s and, and all these things. I, I'm not sure the cause of death and all that stuff. Actually, Willie Nelson is just another example of another social media hoax that keeps propelling celebrities as if they have died. You remember back in 1966, Paul McCartney was thought to be dead and then replaced with somebody who looks like him. Bill Murray has been like that. Bill Cosby has been like that. There's been endless other celebrities that this this news come across our news feed that they're dead, but it's not really that they're actually dead. Why is it? It's because we enjoy gossip. Some of y'all like are really starting to tear up over the thought of Willie Nelson. <laughs> he smoked his last joint. It's, it's done. But we, why do we, we hook into that stuff? Why? Because we love juicy gossip. 
We love hearing the news about other people's lives, other things going on with it, and so we cling to it. And so could it be that this Amalekite is wanting to pass on the juiciest of juicy gossip to David of all people? Could it be that he wants to pass along information, and the information he is passing along, like all gossip, is completely inaccurate and biased? You see, we love gossip. How much of our day, how much of our hours revolve around getting people's information, finding out about someone else so that we can pass it along to someone else? We thrive on gossip. We love gossip because we love what's going on in other people's lives. It was the great Greek philosopher Socrates that once said, Strong minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Weak minds discuss people. So may we be challenged by the words of Scripture that over 70 times tells us to avoid gossip altogether. May we be challenged by this text to avoid that in our lives. Could there be another reason that this Amalekite is trying to pronounce this word to David? Do you remember way back in the story of 1 Samuel where Saul is instructed to kill the entire Amalekite tribe. You remember that story? It was a horrible story. Horrible theological thing for us to wrestle through. So could it be that this Amalekite, who had his fellow kinsmen murdered by King Saul, would want to be the one to tell David of all people that this horrible king, this king named Saul, is finally dead and that this man is the one who did it? And so here he is before David. He is celebrating the death of this man. He is passing along this word that this horrible man is finally dead. We celebrate death often in our society, don't we? Think back to the horrible tragedies of of 2001, September 11th. Remember, it immediately propelled Americans into this war where we, we were hunting down uh, Osama bin Laden. We were, we were hunting down Saddam Hussein. And it only took six months from the time that Americans entered into uh, Iraq that they finally found this once proud man was now in shambles. They found Saddam Hussein literally in a hole in the ground in a farmhouse. And three years after he was arrested, he was tried, and he was executed. And it was supposed to be a private thing, but videos and pictures of Saddam Hussein's death just went viral. It was the things that Americans were talking about for weeks and weeks. And then almost 10 years to the date of the events of 9-11, what happened in a a town called Abbottabad, Pakistan, at 1 in the morning, U.S. troops went in. The goal was to take out or to take with them the most wanted man in the world. And that's where Osama bin Laden was killed. And you remember the aftermath. The streets of D.C. and New York were just filled with people waving flags and celebrating. It was a, it was a high moment for the American people. But these two men that had been the people behind literally the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people had finally been killed for their actions. It was a moment of patriotism. But as followers of Christ... It takes a different tone. It really does. It causes us to pause and say, do we celebrate death? Do we celebrate the end of a life? Now, when I talk about these things and things, everybody, their first thought is is going to immediately be, you're so unpatriotic. You so don't care about those people who died. This is not anything to do with that. I, I mourn for those people who died. I mourn for those who still suffer from the death of those who died as a result of those actions. But as followers of Christ, do we celebrate death? Death is a final thing. 
It's one of those things where it tells us that these people who are broken, these people who made horrible and vile decisions, they never were able to come out of that brokenness to find the healing that God gives us. And so as Christians, if we celebrate death... We're saying that's, that's the ultimate thing we need in life and that God cannot overcome these horrible actions of these men. It's a difficult thing for us to wrestle through. And so maybe this scripture should pause us to challenge us to say, how do we approach the death and end of people who are our enemies? Do we wish for their final destruction? Or do we, as people transformed by the love of God, hope that in some way they discover the grace and mercy of God? Not that justice won't come, but they are transformed by God's love, that they find the eternal life that all of us desire for ourselves. That's the challenge of these acts. Death is final. There's a great quote from... J.R.R. Tolkien, through the character Gandalf, who says this, Many that deserve to live, die. Some that deserve to die, live. Can you give that to them? Do not be eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. You see, God's love is powerful. And no matter how vile our actions might be, no matter how much our choices might lead to impacting literally hundreds of thousands of people, we must be amazed by the love of God that can transform life. And so may we just be challenged by this text to not celebrate death, ever. And I know that's hard to swallow. I know that hits a nerve within most of us. And maybe we're not there yet, but the love of Christ compels us to something different. What does David respond? It says here in verse 11 that upon hearing the death of his enemy, David and all his men took hold of their clothes and they tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen on the sword. And then it says in verse 22 that David wrote this lament and he asked that all of Israel recite it. And he said, from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, from the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan in life, they were loved and admired and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul who clothes you in scarlet and finery. Who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold, how the mighty have fallen in battle. How does David respond to the man who literally has been trying to hunt down and murder him, his men, and has killed many people along the way? He mourns. And the words used there in Hebrew are not simply that David just cried. The two verbs that are used there, the first word is shafad, which means to wail or to mourn. The second verb used there is bakal, which means to weep bitterly and to wail. Saul is, is dead. This horrible person is dead. And how does David respond? He is absolutely distraught. He tears his clothes and begins to weep and to wail. It says that he fasts until the end of the day and he pins this beautiful lament. And so what we learn from the character of David is this. Even when a man has made your life miserable, even when a man has literally tried to murder you again and again and again, we learn what it means to chase after God's own heart. That's what David described as, as loving your enemies. There's another kind of semi-famous person that, that talked about loving your enemies. <laughs> and he said these words. But you who are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on your cheek, turn the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the broken can love others. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even the broken can do that. If you lend to those and expect nothing in return to those who you know will pay you back, what good is that to you? But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend without expecting to be back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful and just as your Father is merciful. So I've been told from time to time in my life that I have what's called cavity-prone teeth. And our resident dentist is probably chuckling about this. He's all the way in the back, don't worry. Uh, It's because I have shallow grooves and because I have a small, like, thin enamel. I don't know the whole thing. So from time to time, I have found myself maybe roughly 20 times in the dentist seat getting a cavity filled. Don't judge me. Don't look in my mouth either. And I'll know it afterwards. Some of y'all come talk to me and see if you can get a peek in there. It's disgusting. It's gross. Anybody ever get a cavity filled before? Yeah. I see that hand. I see that hand. Yeah. It is the weirdest thing. They, they take that needle, and David write notes on this. When they stick the needle into your gum, I swear to all things sacred and holy, they're trying to get down as far as they possibly can. Or when they stick it here, it's like, are you touching my eye? A single tear always comes down. It never fails. So here's the process. They stick you, and then they wait, what, they're given 15 to 20 minutes. So this one particular time, I was sitting down with the dentist, and they did the 15, 20 minutes after numbing me up, and the... The dentist comes in, he grabs his drill, and he's starting to go into my tooth. But this time it felt just like a tad different. This time it felt a little more real. This time, sweet mother, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, he hit a nerve. And I literally kicked out of my chair. And he goes, did I hit a nerve? I said, did you hit a nerve? Did you hit a nerve? You hit the mother of all nerves, man. This text should hit a nerve. It should hit our nerves when, when you hear a preacher say, should we celebrate the death of an enemy? It should hit our nerve when Jesus looks at us and says, I'm not telling you just to love those who are easy to love. I'm telling you to love the very people who hate you. The very people that strike you on the face. The very people that curse you with words. That should hit a nerve within us. It should. And if it doesn't, you need to check your pulse. Or maybe we need to stop acting like we're so self-righteous and we really do love all people. There are people in our life that we can't stand. And these very people are the people that Jesus are telling us to love. You see, we're on board with Jesus when he says what? Well, give your money to the poor. Help, help those out. We're on board with Jesus when he performs these awesome miracles. But then when Jesus gets to this text when he's asking us to love, to serve, to bless, to pray for those who harm us, that's a big old butt that throws in the way of if we're really willing to follow Jesus, isn't it? It challenges us down to the very nerve and core of our existence. All of a sudden, the way of following Jesus just went from easy to virtually impossible within our life. And so this text should cause us to pause us to wonder and say, who is my enemy? You see, as Jesus is uttering these words to the people that are listening to the Israelites, they knew who their enemy was. Enemy number one was the Romans. That was easy. 
This was this group that had come in and completely pressed the people down. They had stolen their so-called promised land. They had taken their homes. They had taken their property. They had taxed the mess out of them. They had abused and, and, and done horrible things to their daughters and to their wives. And on top of that, they allowed the Jewish religious system to threaten people with this spiritual talk. And so they caused the people to give more money, more religious acts. And so as Jesus is saying these words to these people... They knew who their enemy was. But do we? Who is your enemy? Who is it that gets on your nerves? Who is that person at work that when you see walk down the hall, your first thought is, oh my gosh, they are the worst. (laughs) Who is that person that when they come, you, you don't utter a word to them. You might not even look at them. And sometimes it's not somebody we say every day. Sometimes it's a politician. Mm, I just hit some nerves, didn't I? Sometimes it's that person that is passing those laws or proclaiming those things that we don't agree with. Sometimes the enemy is that person across the border, across the sea that we hate so vehemently. Sometimes enemy is within our home and our church communities. Who is your enemy? You see, the words of Jesus hit a nerve. It's challenging. And so the realization of who our enemy is compared to the realization of Jesus' words, our immediate response is this, I can't. I can't. They have done far too much for far too long. I cannot love them. I cannot serve them. I can only rejoice when they are harmed, when their downfall comes, when they die. It's this insurmountable emotion of vile and hatred and darkness that consume our hearts that lead to blame and to judgment. It's impossible. You know, oftentimes as followers of Christ, we read the stories of Jesus and they they become too easy to us, right? Jesus feeds the 5,000 with just some loaves of bread and some fish. Jesus literally resurrects a little girl from the dead. Jesus casts out this demon. And so sometimes those stories can become dull and watered down to us. But there's one particular story of Jesus that it always blows my mind. Here, Jesus and the disciples get into a boat. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee, an easy trek for the fishermen who are in Jesus' group, right? And then what happens? The storm comes. The wind begins to pick up. The waves become absolutely horrible. It's a moment of turmoil. The disciples are thinking to themselves, this is it. We're done. We're dead. And the whole time, Jesus is sleeping in the bow of the boat. And so they they wake him, and Jesus gets up. He calms the water with mere motions and words, and then he begins to question the faith of the disciples. You see, may we not forget that the God who can calm seas, who can cast out demons, who can resurrect life, can transform our hearts, can transform our hatred and our bitterness and our grudges towards those who have hurt us. It is only God who can teach us to love our enemies. You see, the words of Jesus hit on an emotional and physical level, don't they? The emotions that well up inside of remembering the things that people have done, the physical things that happen, the clammy hands, the nervousness, the, 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 the shakiness that happens. But that's why love has to hit on a spiritual level. Love has to come from God. You see, it's God transforming our hearts and our minds and our souls that begins to create something within us that seems virtually impossible, as if calming a raging storm around us. Only God can do that. There's a theologian that wrote these words. Because Christ died for all, we are called to forgive everyone who offends us without distinction and without condition. 
That hard work of indiscriminate forgiveness is what those who have been made in the likeness of forgiving God by God should do. Loving your neighbor seems impossible, but through Christ, it becomes the spiritual revolution that happens inside of us. It helps us overcome these deeply rooted things within our mind and our heart and our soul. And that is the work of God. There's an old Taoist saying like this. When the obstacle is removed from the eye, the eye sees. When the obstacle is removed from the ear, the ear hears. When the obstacle is removed from the heart, the heart loves. That's a miracle that happens only from God. I'm a huge historian, and uh, in fact, if I'm listening to an audiobook, I just finished <laughs> I just finished a 20-hour series on World War One. Okay, so all right, we'll get that done. I'm, I'm that big of a dork. So, so I love studying all the different periods, and one of my more fascinating things to study is, is the period of, of World War II and, and what was happening there. So uh, we all know uh, on May the 7th, the war in Europe ended in 1945. Italy had completely fallen. Germany had completely fallen. But in the Pacific, the Japanese war raged on. But it's a little-known fact that it was only going to be a matter of months before the Japanese had run out of resources and run out of manpower before they literally were just going to have to give up because of a lack of resources. But a a decision was made to save lives. A decision was made to save some time. And, And that decision was made that on August the 6th, 1945, two American bombers flew over the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and dropped two atomic bombs. And they say that the death toll and injuries from that are really incalculable. What's little known about that story is it was an Air Force chaplain who actually put his hands on the bomb and the pilots and blessed them as they went off to fly. And for 44 years, that decision haunted that very chaplain. Father George, for 44 years, was haunted and horrified by his choice to bless the death of so many. And before he died in 1992, he left this beautiful speech and said this, All I can say is that I was wrong. Christ would not be an instrument to unleash such horror on his people. Therefore, no follower of Christ can legitimately unleash the horror of war on God's people. Excuses and self justification explanations are without merit all i can say is i was wrong but if that's all i can say as feeble as it might be that's all i can do for that is what i otherwise do i went to the feet of the people of japan and i begged for forgiveness He tells this beautiful story of how he went to Nagasaki and Hiroshima and literally fell down at the feet of these people, their family members that survived, and begged for forgiveness. Months later, he actually went to Pearl Harbor, where there with some Japanese, they too begged for forgiveness for unleashing such a hell. You see, as humans, such a thing seems impossible. But with God, many things are possible. With God, a love for enemy is possible. With God, we can see the the child that is within each person, the image of God that's within each person. And it challenges us to day to day not pass along that gossip, not pass along that grudge, not pass along that word, not give that despising look, but to maybe pause and to love someone as a child of God. That's what David teaches us in this text. So may the Spirit of God Increase our faith that we might see the way of Jesus. 
May the Spirit of God within us challenge us to not first speak, but maybe to first pray. And to first serve instead of lash out and hate. May the Spirit of God increase our faith so that you and I might see miracles happen each day of our lives. Let's pray together. God, I know that bringing up examples of World War II, the horrible acts of that disgusting war. I know by by mentioning the names Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, we remember the thousands who died as a result, the thousands who died in war as a result of their actions. And so I know, God, that I am hitting on nerves. But I pray that what you might do within me first, within each of our lives, is that we not be consumed with the mentality of this world that says rivalries and competition and grudges power us forward and power us to the top of the mountain. But you may you challenge us to see that it is love that's the only insurmountable force in this world. Love conquers all. Love heals all brokenness. Love extends mercy. But love also brings justice for the poor choices that we make and the choices others make. So God, may we not be consumed by anger and frustration towards those who have wronged us, but may we be consumed by your spirit that challenges us, encourages us, empower us to become a people of mercy and grace and hope and love in this world. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.